right, guys, welcome back to episode four of Young and Successful. We are happy to be here today, and we have an exciting episode ahead of us. Um, we have here with us David Gorham. Um, Jackson's going to give us a quick little intro for David so you guys can get to know him a little bit before we jump into this episode. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, one of our good friends, we're actually all three together in the office today, so it'll be fun, and it's not over Skype, so that's nice. We didn't have to figure out how to record multiple microphones on Skype like we did for episode three. Uh, but Davey is one of my good friends. Davey, here's his bio. He is a 29-year-old entrepreneur who lives in Pocatello, Idaho. He moved here from Missouri with his wife, Mackenzie, when he was 21 after he got his degree in chemical engineering. He is currently a senior project manager for a specialty tax firm, and he focuses almost exclusively on the research and development tax credit. Davey's passion for freedom sparked his entrepreneurial drive. So in addition to his career with the tax firm, he currently has several active endeavors, including owning and operating a jujitsu school where he frequently beats me up, running a small scale farm and providing basic financial counseling services. So I met Davey, let's see, probably eight months ago. About a year, give or take. Give or take, yeah. When I showed up to the gym, um, he runs a gym in Pocatello called Colossal Fight Company. And uh, my wife was actually out of town one week and I was bored after like five days. And I was like, what am I going to do? It was a Friday night. And uh, I had been wanting to sign up for jujitsu and go learn jujitsu. And uh, so I emailed him or messaged him on Facebook. And I said, hey, you guys have classes? What's the schedule? And he told me the schedule. So I showed up and uh, endured quickly uh, the worst beating that I had taken really ever. Um, <laughs> not to sound like arrogant or anything, but I'm pretty athletic. And I, f I felt like I was pretty in shape. And after that, I went home and I took a bath. And I like loaded up our bath in Epsom salt. And I was like, this is painful. What have I done? It's and a full next, body workout for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So Davey is a brown belt in jujitsu. He's our lead instructor at the, at the gym. Good guy. Um, so he's here with us. And we're going to kind of just jump in and, and have him tell his story. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Uh, where do you want to start? Just a little bit uh, about you. Where do you come from? Kind of your, your upbringing a little bit. And then let's just jump right into what you do now and how you got there. So cool. just, I guess let's just start with your childhood. Where'd you grow up? So I grew up in a really rural community in Missouri. Uh, it's actually an unincorporated community, which means we lost our post office in like 1904 or something. <laughs> so, uh, bleeding edge. Yes, right. Um, so I grew up, I went to school in a town called Richmond, Missouri. And so uh, went through public school there. I was a pretty good student. Um, what uh, what do your parents do? So my dad was a defense attorney, and then he was also a prosecutor for a neighboring county for a while. Then my mom was a stay-at-home mom until I was like 9 or 10-ish, and then she uh, started working at the school. Okay. So uh, relatively isolated existence and very, very simple, I would say. So I spent a lot of time just kind of by myself or with my brother on a farm. I remember you telling me one time that your parents were pretty strict with like, I mean, how they brought you up, what you were allowed to do. So it was a pretty kind of controlled environment that you grew up in? Did they push you to excel in school? Yeah, to say the least. And the, the expectation with school was I was going to get straight A's or I wasn't going to do anything else. Okay, so, right. I mean, it it was good to be pushed that way and it definitely paid off. Uh, I didn't appreciate it when I was that young, especially. I mean, no kid likes being told to do well. But um, there were also some other things like, you know, sometimes my dad would have me read an article and then he would ask me, what's this word mean? And if I couldn't define it afterwards, I'd have to go look it up in the dictionary and like write down the definition 20 or 30 times. <laughs> okay. Which again, you don't appreciate as a kid, but it teaches you not to skip over things that might be important. Every so. time I actually talk with Davey, I feel like I'm listening to an episode of Sam Harris's podcast because he'll use words that I have to look up on Wikipedia. <laughs> 
And I've learned that if you highlight the word in Facebook chat, you can right click and it will just look it up right there in this little window. So you can definitely tell that Davey, and I call him Davey, David, um, you know, he's got a large vocabulary, he's intelligent. And we felt like bringing him on was going to introduce this entire new concept to the podcast of you can actually be extremely successful in what you do by pursuing a career and going to college. So my episode was relatively um, anti-college and Carl's episode, episode three, also he does something that he did not, you know, go to school for. So Davies, it's good to see this side of, of being successful. Um, it sounds like you started off from a young age being kind of schooled and, and modeled and, and formed to be a hard worker, diligent with school, things like that. Yeah. yeah, it was definitely a push. There was an expectation that I was going to do well in school. Once I finished up with middle school, there was a program called the Missouri Academy of Science, Mathematics, and Computing, which unfortunately is actually uh, being closed down after next year. But uh, my brother went to it. So I was 14 years old and he got accepted into this experimental program and the idea was that they interview college or uh, high school students from all over Missouri, and once you complete your sophomore year, you are able to go to a boarding school located on the campus of Northwest Missouri State University. For high school? Exactly, yeah. Okay. So you're, you're in high school and college at the same time. And so from 16 to 18, you're taking college classes, and you would graduate at the age of 18 with you know 70 college credits and an Associates of Science. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, so it was and a prestigious program. Diploma. Exactly, right? Okay. <clears throat> And so, uh, you know, once my brother got in, I knew the quality was going downhill. They were going to accept me. <laughs> Shout gonna, out to your brother. Take, they'll take anyone if they'll take him, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, I'm going to have a tough Christmas because of this. But yeah, uh, that's right. no, my brother got into it, and then he went through the program, and I saw how much it changed him to be able to get out of the public school environment and actually start, start sooner. And so as soon as he was accepted, that kind of became my goal. And so I had always been a really good student. I was a straight-A student. Um, I applied for it, got in, and so at that time there was, I didn't know what I wanted to do, I mean what high schooler does, right? Yeah. But I had an idea that I wanted to go into you know, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, because those were the highest normal paychecks. Right. So right. just looking at it, it was the best balance of not going to school for 10 years and still making a pretty good wage. Yeah. So quick question about the boarding school, what was, what was that like? Did you enjoy it? I mean, was it different than, I mean, you experienced some normal high school, correct, before you went there? Yes. So what would you say kind of was the difference between where you were going before you went to the boarding school and the difference, I guess, at the boarding school itself? So in public school, especially if you're a good student, it's really easy to feel like you're bored or stagnated. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the worst things that happens, especially to people on the higher end of the spectrum academically, is they start thinking they're more than they are. You know, if you're the big fish in a small pond, you don't get prepared for failure. And when I went to this school, first of all, it was completely awesome. Those were two really great years of my life. I met some lifelong friends there, but I met people who were so much smarter than I was, right? And so much more driven. And it showed me that I'm not at the top of the pack by any means, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Because prior to that, I mean, I do math contests, quiz bowl. I was very popular, you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when I, <laughs> maybe a shocker, but uh, high school was kind of tough early on. But, um, you know, every time I didn't get the result that I thought I should, it, it was tough for me, right? You know, you tear up, you tear up, you maybe you cry, you just have this terrible reaction because I thought I was really something because I was in a small environment, right? Yeah. And so you go to this boarding school and all of a sudden it's 50 people from all over the state of Missouri and later they expanded it to accept students, I think from South Korea as well. So, so I mean, there were only 50 of you? Yeah, 50 okay. of each academic year. Oh, gotcha. So it was yeah. the top 50 students in theory. So yeah. the best 50 applicants. And I mean, several of my compatriots from school are working for like SpaceX now, they're doctors, they're wow. attorneys. Like I'm, I'm the humble engineer, right? So. <laughs> right. 
<clears throat> but it was really, really nice to meet other people and kind of see where that spectrum can go. Um, the academics weren't particularly hard for the first two years. I mean, they were just generals. And I mean, all of us were good at science, technology, those type of classes. So the first two years of college there weren't so bad. And then uh, once I went from that university, uh, from that program, I went to University of Missouri Rolla, which has also had a name change. It's the Missouri University of Science and Technology. And even then, um, <clears throat> I went from getting that Associates of Science and knowing that's the direction I wanted to go to having to decide, you know, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And UMR was very much an engineering school. It still is. It's relatively prestigious, has a really good ROI up there with like MIT and Caltech. But I still had to choose what I wanted to do. Did you get a scholarship? Uh, yes, even though I applied very late. Um, I ended up getting several academic scholarships, and that definitely helped. I did have to take some loans out to pay for school, though. Um, so, but, you, so you graduated from high school and also had your associate's degree? Correct, at 18 years old. At 18, and I guess, well, included in that it were 70 college credits. Exactly. Okay, so when you went to your first year at the university outside of your high school, you were a junior? Correct, yes. Okay, so at that point, that's that's right when you really have to declare a major. Right, exactly. And there are many types of engineering, right? Um, your wife is yeah. an engineer. Yeah, she's a nuclear engineer. She has a master's in nuclear engineering. Yeah, and so, I mean, there's mechanical engineering, there's electrical engineering, computer engineering, and you chose chemical engineering. Yes. How did you choose that? What led you there? Did you have anything before that that you wanted to do? I mean, how did you make that decision? Because at 18, I didn't know what I wanted to do for my major. And from 18 to about 22, I changed it, I think, six times. Nice. Yeah, I listened to you that. Know, so how, I mean, how were you able to make such a, a lifelong decision at that age? So... The rationale I had initially was I looked at the classes I'd done well in, and chemistry I was far and away the best at. I'd taken it in high school. I was still good at those classes. I jived well with the chemistry majors. I thought I was going to do chemistry at uh, UMR, and then I looked at the difference in pay between chemistry and chemical engineering, and I changed my major that day. So <laughs> right, I, yeah. I, there's no way, right? Yeah. If you tack engineering onto something, you make like 30 to 50 grand a year more, and that's really? no brainer. Yeah. Wow. Pure sciences are not, they are not as compens well compensated as engineering. Okay. Um, and really, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I also heard, you know, my dad was extremely fiscally conservative, and you don't take out loans, and if you're going to do something, get in, get your degree, get out, right? I mean, you don't want to build up a lot of student loans if you're not going to have a good return on investment. And so I really just picked it because it sounded interesting and decided, hey, I've picked it, I'm going to stick with it. And so okay. got through the program. It was exceptionally tough. Yeah. The first two years of my college experience when I was at the academy were very easy. I really didn't crack a book. As soon as I hit Rolla, I really hit a wall, if you will, where all of a sudden my natural talent was not enough to carry me through. I failed a class. I had a professor tell me, you're not going to make it as an engineer, which was a pretty fair assessment. I can't blame him for that. <laughs> I would have bet with him too. Yeah. Um, but I had to actually learn to work in college, which I think is a terrible place to learn to do it, but still better there than never. But I mean, I had to buckle down, start studying, actually start applying myself. And that's really when I would say, like, I started getting a direction of wanting to work hard. How did you learn that? Uh, through attrition, I suppose. Uh, what it came down to was, I guess it was almost uh, ego-driven. But I mean, all these people I'd gone to school with and my peers, they were doing well in their classes and succeeding. And for me, you know, I could have dropped out. I could have changed majors. I could have gone the easier course. But I didn't want to be the one who was left behind. And so... 
it's very, very tough for me to accept defeat in a lot of ways. And I really wanted to prove that I could do it. And so that actually, that was the first time I would say I really had to work to accomplish something. So you got your bachelor's degree in two years, right? I got my bachelor's in three because three? I came in with okay. so many credits. I was taking between 12 and 14 credits a semester. Okay. Um, my wife was much more diligent. She was taking like 21 credits a semester at an engineering school. But I just kind of coasted and kept even with her because we were dating. Was she at the same school you were? Yeah, we actually met at the academy. Okay. And then we went to college together. I talked her out of going to a better university so I could stay with her. Um, so uh, She's yet to be determined if she's happy she made that decision. <laughs> Charisma is better than intelligence to That's anyone right. listening. Um, so did you get married while you were in college? We graduated from college. And then within seven days, we got married. And then we moved to Idaho three or four days after that. What brought you to Idaho? Um, I like to think that my family was cursed. But... Um, <laughs> No, uh, I, I like we that love way it of thinking. <laughs> I'm going to use that one now too. So I was in the final round of applications for a job with uh, Schlumberger, which is a uh, a company that a lot of chemical engineers work at, to put it succinctly. And my wife got an internship offer at uh, the Idaho National Lab up here. It's one of the primary employers for the state. And for the field that she wanted to pursue, she was going to do a master's degree and then possibly a PhD up here. So she got offered, I think it was a $20,000 a year stipend or something. And so I turned down my job and I moved out here to kind of let her have her aspirations. Because I thought, A, if I have a degree, it'll be easy to get hired. And B, if I don't have strong feelings about what I want to do, and she does, I would rather let her work. So, so she took the job or the internship out here that was paid. Did you have any friends or family out in Idaho? So we moved out here with a friend of ours from the academy, and then he went to a different university. But he was actually living with us for a while, and both he and I were unemployed for, I want to say, 10 months or a year. We almost went bankrupt, actually. Like, so with two engineering degrees, we actually almost had to move back in with our parents. Right. Uh, it was right at the end of our rope before I ended up finding a job. But yeah. So what was your first job out <clears throat> of college? So my first job out of college was at a company called Premier Technology. And so I was a design engineer for uh, the nuclear mining and defense industries. So uh, I would say one of the main things I did was design atmospheric compression systems for glove boxes, not like the ones in cars, but like Homer Simpson style. Right. Because right. so <laughs> that question always comes up. Okay. But uh, so you can handle radiological material safely. Yeah. Unless gotcha. I designed it. Unless you designed it. Okay. So whichever ones you designed, everybody stay away from or make sure you've got some big gloves, thick gloves. Um, <laughs> Okay, so you went 10 months to a year without finding a job, but you had, you had a pretty a, attractive degree, um, you know, chemical engineering. This, the story that I remember from high school or college was if you get any degree in engineering, you've got a job. Right. So why, why was it hard for you to find a job? Were you picky and just waiting for one? And, and what finally led to you securing that first job? So totally the opposite on being picky. Uh, okay. I actually threw out, I think it was like 126 job applications in the course of that 10 months. And, you know, most of those rejections came pretty quickly. But, uh, you know, I was, whatever job I could get, I would take. I, I wanted to get something professional. I mean, I could have done something like work at fast food. But I wanted to really save that because it doesn't look good to prospective employers. Right. Um, I actually ended up getting a job because I was tutoring a girl in college algebra. You know, I met her through my church and she'd been having trouble with math. So I thought, why not use my time productively, right? And she was asking me what I did and I explained the situation. It turns out her dad was the engineering manager. And oh, so okay. from that, I just happened to get a connection. Okay. Um, it was very frustrating though, because chemical engineering is supposed to be a pretty prestigious mm -hmm. degree. And to go that long without getting a job, I mean, it definitely was a huge blow to the ego. It was tough to deal with. And it's not what you expect, right? I mean, engineer out of school, you expect to be able to find a job. But 
when you're very geographically specific with no connections, it's much harder. Yeah. Okay. So for someone that's maybe going through that same struggle right now, I'm sure it's a pretty common thing. You know, you get out of college, you graduate with your degree, you think that jobs are just going to fall onto your lap, but it's not that easy always. What would you say to that person that's maybe, you know, gone six months now looking for the right job, hasn't been able to find the right job, secure that right job. What would you say to that person? I guess based on your experience, um, should they just find something and settle for something now or should they continue to find that job that's right for them? Really good question. So the first thing I would say is make sure that your expectations are realistic. I had the assumption that with an engineering degree, people would strongly desire me over other applicants, right? And you have to realize that when you are a fresh graduate, you really don't have any skills, even if you came from a professional school. So settling for something below what you expect can sometimes be a good option. Uh, The other thing I would say is don't stop trying. Uh, Many of the people that I went to school with who I would say are far more intelligent than me ended up getting employment far below what they could have. You know, they are far less than their potential because they were too picky. This isn't good enough for me. The salary is not high enough. I would say get your foot in the door and start working up. The trade of hard work is more important than a qualification. It's more important than talent. I really think that is the key to success. Great. So you almost went bankrupt, you said? Oh, did we ever. Yeah, we were. Uh, several of our meals were based on hot dogs and ramen. Uh, there were three of us living on uh, like 1500 a month, I want to say, give, yeah. give take after tax. And it was very hard because I'd always been a saver. My parents always encouraged me to save. It was a very, very strong financial value. And I mean, we were getting to the end of our bank account and our income just was not matching up with our expenses. And so uh, it was a very tough thing for us to deal with. So, yeah, I asked that because um, <clears throat> one night I, I stayed at jujitsu longer than I should have, like till ten thirty, just talking with Davy, and the the discussion was very appealing to me. We were talking about the financial independence subreddit, and no one else that I've ever talked to knew what that was, and we discovered that we knew, and we had this mindset of being extremely, you know. Um, being able to live your lifestyle and not depend on your your job, right? And have passive investments and whatnot. So what did you learn from almost going bankrupt? And did you have this mindset of being conservative with your own funds and budgeting before you went bankrupt? And is that why your money lasted so long before you made it? Or did that kind of form your ideas? Uh, it actually is yes to both. So okay. I felt I was very conservative, and compared to a lot of people my age, I was. I would save a lot of my paychecks. I put a lot in the bank. Uh, over time, I think I had like 20000 bucks saved up when I started college. I mean, that, that was very good for someone my age. However, I wasn't as diligent as I thought. So I wasn't good with budgeting. Money would kind of slip away. And again, it was kind of a lifestyle expectation that I'd refused to let slip. And so that pride of I have a degree, I should be able to afford these things, and I mean, that really got in the way of looking at your circumstances, right? Because life doesn't actually owe you anything. You need to live within your means, whatever those means are. And I would say that was the bottom line that I learned from that experience. I think a lot of people struggle with that right now too, yeah. especially living within your means. I mean, we live in a time where you see all these Instagram stars, you know, YouTube stars, you see this life they live, they're mm-hmm. traveling everywhere and everyone wants to have that life. I think a lot of people kind of just blow through their money, through their savings to kind of showcase that life that they don't really have. So I, I think that's great advice. It's appealing to me. So I work in retirement planning and, and we'll have clients come in and they'll have fifteen, twenty thousand dollars of passive income in retirement and up per month. And it, it won't go anywhere. 
right? That their lifestyle isn't that great because they've got debt or bills or they splurge and they don't, you know, and then people will come in and they've got social security and some pension and, a, you know, a small IRA that we're pulling from and they live, they've got so much freedom, you know, they've got the ability to do whatever they want, you know, obviously within reason. Um, but it really, it kind of depends on lifestyle. And I think that Davey really has perfected that in terms of, I don't know if this is too personal. If it is, we can cut it out. But he told me that one time his mortgage payment was like $258. Yeah, give take. Yeah. Wow. And he <laughs> can get by on, you know, you said if worse comes to worse, you could get a part-time job and you wouldn't at, at McDonald's and you wouldn't lose your home. If I worked at McDonald's, we could actually continue saving at a relatively high rate because when you look at our monthly liabilities lined up, I, I could easily do that on 40 hours a week at minimum wage. Okay, so here's my question. I'm not good at budgeting. I'll, I'll be the first to admit, like, I just spend money when I want to. I, I don't, I'm also smart enough to not like go bankrupt. You know, I know right. what I can spend, but I'm not good at budgeting. So if someone like me, you know, that maybe has a little bit of money, um, is doing all right, but doesn't really budget anything, what would, what would be the advice you give to someone like me? The first thing I would always say to everyone is you need to look at your current financial situation because you can't make a budget. You can't determine a direction if you don't look at where you are. And I know that fear very, very well of not wanting to look at your bank account, like you only check what you have in your bank after payday, et cetera. It's fear, right? Yeah. You have to get past that and look at no matter how bad it is, it will only get worse if you don't know what's happening. It's right? always less than you want it to be. Right. I mean, you don't have the surgeon start doing surgery until he actually does an evaluation, right? You yeah. can't start cutting until you know what you're looking at. So first is take a full appraisal of your financial status. What are the debts I owe? What's my income? What are my assets? Once you have that picture, then you can look at where do I want to go, right? Whatever mountain I want to climb or wherever I want to be in X time, you can start getting a path between those two points. But if you don't have those two things settled, I mean, you're really just guessing, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't give you budgeting advice without knowing what your budget is, right? Or yeah, what your absolutely. current financial status absolutely. is. But I, I like that, how you said, I could still save, have a job at McDonald's and still be able to save money. Right. I think a lot of people are in that position where they're like, if only I could make a little bit more money, I would start saving. If only I could you know, have a better job, get a promotion, whatever it is. But I think no matter your situation, no matter how much, how little money you're making, there's a way to do it. You just have to plan for it. Right. Here's the counter argument. Um, budgeting does not, it's not sexy. Right. And you no. think, okay, well, speak if, I, yourself. <laughs> if I spend my money, I'm going to have a better life. And, and people um, relate happiness to material possessions. Yes. And I have actually found that the opposite is true. Yes. Right? And it's, it's possible to have happiness without the fancy car. I have a race car, but that doesn't count. Um, <laughs> that does bring happiness. Yeah. It, do, it brings a lot of happiness, and I wouldn't be happy without it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so talk a little bit about that because we've had this discussion before where you know you, you have these goals to make you know a million bucks a year in passive income, or once someone does, but that doesn't necessarily make you happier. Right. How have you discovered that in your personal life? So... Uh, first of all, it's a really stoic point of view. I mean, I think that when you desire, when you desire, period, that sets something in motion where you have to fulfill that desire, otherwise you're unhappy, right? And so a lot, so a lot of the stoic philosophers, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, they really talked about dialing down your desires. And from that, I mean, you'll have a much more, I would say, productive or happy life. Uh, in my own life, a lot of these lessons trickled down from the Great Depression. So my great-grandparents on my father's side lived through it. I think all of my great-grandparents did, by definition. Right. But... Um, I've talked with my grandmother quite a bit, and she's very fiscally conservative as well. And she would talk about how her parents would save all their money in a jar, and they'd always talk about how nothing is guaranteed. 
And so anytime that I'm up against something like, oh, I can't save as much as I want, I don't know if we can afford this, I think, you know, two generations back, they were wondering if, you know, the Japanese were going to win the war, right? Or you, there were much bigger problems for them as a culture. And so whatever I'm looking at right now is so small in comparison. Right. I mean, I think that all of us in this room have very, very blessed lives. Yeah. Yes. It's like the John Steinbeck, the Grapes of Wrath, right? They got so much joy from eating these berries and these vegetables. It puts it into perspective. Exactly. Of, you know, okay, do I get the iMac Pro or do I just get the normal iMac? I don't know. Right? Yes. It's, it's a hard decision. You know, iMac Pro is cool. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I lived in Portugal and actually that was pretty eye-opening for me too because there's not a lot of wealthy people there. Um, a lot of people that I was teaching just lived in little... Uh, I guess like tin sheds, basically nothing, right. but they were super happy. Yeah. And for me, that was eye opening. It's like, I don't know if I would be happy in that situation, but I think it's, it's because of the way I was, you know, raised. I always had a decent living. Um, I didn't have to worry about money, things like that. So seeing those people happy, even when they had nothing, I found interesting. And it does show that money isn't what brings happiness. Now, money does bring some freedom. It allows you to do things. It is a good thing to have, but it doesn't always bring you happiness. You can still be unhappy and wealthy. Oh, certainly. I, I think there's actually a lot of data, at least in the United States, supporting the fact that suicide is much more common the higher you are in social strata. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you really break down, you mentioned social media, and I think that is one of the core issues. We are taught as a culture to look at other people. And so when you look at someone else's lifestyle, you're only going to see the deficiencies in your own, right? Or you're looking at their lifestyle to think about how much better you are, which I would say is equally unhealthy. Yes. But... At the end of the day, my wife and I talk about this all the time because we have to be on the same page. And if we lost everything, if all of our assets were gone and we had, you know, beg for money, right? Say we're on welfare, say everything came tumbling down, we still have each other. People matter, mm -hmm. right? There are many irreplaceable things in life and money is a tool to buy either freedom or time or perhaps a possession, but it's ultimately worthless, right? Absolutely. And if you have that perspective, it becomes much less, I would say, consuming to try and gather it. Yeah, And so I do it because I have goals that I want to accomplish in life, but it's just a number and account. If something were to happen, you'd still get through life. Right. Yeah. I'd still have a good time. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, as, once you have that attitude, everything becomes, I would say, a lot more chipper. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not this crushing wage slave having to work for the man. It's enjoyable. Yeah. I like yeah. that. Thank you for that. Kind of went, went off subject yeah, a yeah, little yeah. bit, but I, I like that. And I think it's definitely good advice. And I think it's helpful for probably a lot of people that are listening to this. I think it's applicable for everyone, whether you're in college budgeting and yeah. you, you, you know, don't, you're living on student loans or money from your parents, or if you are the successful CEO of a Fortune 500 company, it's, it's advice that is applicable in every stage. So Absolutely. I think, all right, let's jump back into the story. So at this point in your life, you just got a job, you saved yourself from bankruptcy. So now you've got a paycheck coming in. Um, with what, what was your company called? Premier? Premier Technology. Technologies. Yeah. Were you doing chemical engineering? It, yes. Uh, so I was doing a facet of chemical engineering. Okay. I was doing design engineering. It was extremely satisfying. Uh, there was some other work. They did some defense work that I find very satisfying. I enjoyed that. Uh, it felt meaningful. Um, it was interesting because we had these paychecks coming in. All of a sudden, I mean, this is a fire hose of money compared to eating hot dogs, right? Yeah. Um, and what we noticed was after about six months, we had an overdraft fee. And so, you know, we were making more money than we ever had, and somehow we were spending it all. Mm -hmm. And so we decided, okay, I'm going to look at where the money is going and see what happened. And straight up, we spent, I think, $900 at Ruby Tuesday one month. And granted, <laughs> some of that was a party. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> if anything's going to bring me shame in this podcast, it's that. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, we were we were taking people out to eat. I mean, we, we enjoy people's companies so who will pay for their food. Yeah. But we were being so careless. I mean, $900 at Ruby Tuesday. I, I Multiple times over a month, you say? Oh, yeah. 30 days. Okay. I got gotcha. you. So you went <laughs> a few times. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think twice. Every day. Yeah. Yeah, twice. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, we, we enjoyed that a lot, but we weren't being careful with it. Yeah. So, I mean, the money came in, the money went out. We were just completely mindless about it. Yeah. And was Mackenzie in school? At this point, or was she still doing her internship? Did you, you had two incomes coming in? Uh, so she was still getting her stipend. Shortly after I got hired, she got hired full-time at the INL, working for, I believe, the Department of Energy first. And so I got to be the breadwinner for my family for, I think, like six months. <laughs> right. And then uh, my sugar mama passed me again, which if there's any financial advice in this, it's marry someone smarter than you. That's, That's the right, easiest yeah. path. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we had two checks coming in, good engineering salaries, although starting it, but that was just a torrent of money. Well, especially in Idaho. Oh my goodness. It's cheap to live here. It is. You know? Yeah. My uh, mortgage payment is cheaper than my rent was for a one bedroom apartment in Salt Lake City. Exactly. So yeah. So the cost of living is low, but you were still flying through, the, blown through the money. Right. And the thing was we'd felt deprived because, you know, we felt the pressure, we felt the stress, we felt like things weren't coming together. And so as soon as that money came in, I mean, we already had plans for it, right? Yeah. Vacation here, we got to upgrade the car. Oh, we're going to buy a house. You know, it, easy come, easy go. Yeah. And so once that happened, we started looking at, all right, I, we need to set a budget. And we quickly determined that while my wife is a very responsible person, I'm the one who enjoys numbers. So I sat down and I started saying, okay, here's the budget we're going to follow. And while it was rough at first, all of a sudden we started to notice that our wealth was growing, right? So yeah. we're actually being able to set it aside. And at this point, were you contributing to a 401k? So in my young wisdom, I told the uh, HR people at Premier that I wasn't going to put it in the 401k because I can get better returns on my money, right? <laughs> okay. And of course that was Ruby Tuesday. What, what year was this? <laughs> I'm just trying to think, put this into the market. Uh, this is approximately 2010, early okay. 2010, 2009. So we had gone through the crash. You right. were in college when we went through the crash. Correct. Okay. okay. And I was blissfully unaware of being in college. So. Yeah, right. Um, What's the Dow, you know? Yeah. I, okay. I, I was the same way. I was yeah. in college at the same time too, so okay. you don't really think anything of it at that age. Right. It just slipped by, right? I knew that there was trouble and everyone was talking about like the housing market exploding but or imploding. It doesn't really matter when you're just a student, right? It didn't yeah. affect you at that time, really. Correct. But that by this point, you were fully employed. Um, your wife was employed. You were not contributing to the 401k because you thought you could get better returns at on your money. Tuesday. Yeah. Ruby Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what type of return? I don't know, but it could be a lot more fun, right? Put it where it counts, man. Yeah, that's right. Um, do they even have good food? No. <laughs> No, I, I was wondering the same thing. It's I don't like think Applebee's I've ever been in my there. mind, you know. Unequivocally, no. Okay. We don't have one in Idaho Falls. You guys have one in Pocatello, right? I think so, yeah. I'll have to try it sometime. So, just honestly, because like, of this. straight up, little rabbit trail here. There was a waiter there named Omar. He was from Egypt, and we actually became really good friends with him because he had a bachelor's in nuclear engineering and he was getting a master's in something else. And so, part of it was we would go there and like we'd take our friends with us, but we would hang out with Omar, this waiter. Okay. Oh, it was a good time. <laughs> had a lot of fun. Okay. So, shout out to Omar. Yeah, Omar, <laughs> you are listening. <laughs> <laughs> Tweet him. Um, okay, so you are you're working full time. You you finally established this budget. You're starting to slowly build your wealth. There had to be at some point a transition from Premier Technologies to what you do now. Did you jump right there? Tell us how you you know you obviously left Premier. What caused you to leave, and how did you get to where you are now? So I was working as a design engineer, and I was trying to decide whether or not I wanted to get my PE or professional engineering certification. It's sort of the terminal certification for engineers. Uh, once you get it, you are able to stamp drawings officially, et cetera. And 
I was really thinking I would do the career as a technical representative. But the company was having some trouble. There was talk about layoffs. A lot of us weren't having as many billable hours as we thought. And so I kind of saw the writing on the wall, but I didn't know what to do about it. I mean, it had been so tough to find a first job. And uh, there was a doctor that used to train at Precision, which was the jiu-jitsu school before I took it over. And um, and we'll talk about that because that's the entrepreneur entrepreneurial side of this entire story. Sure. And it has to go back probably to high school or college when you started training. College. Okay. So, um, sorry. So, uh, doctor, we used to go rock climbing with her and her husband. And, you know, one day I was just talking about, I don't know what's going to happen. Am I going to get fired? Is the writing on the wall here? And he was... He, heard me complain, asked a little bit about my background, and I didn't even know this at the time, but he actually ran a specialty tax firm that I still currently work for. So he said that because you have an engineering degree, you are welcome to come on board as a project manager. He kind of explained what the R&D tax credit is. And because of its technical nature, not a lot of accountants do it right. And I was very skeptical about this. I mean, my offer letter was, I think, one and a half pages on eight and a half by 11, right, like quadruple yeah. spaced. Yeah. Um, and so I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to leave the technical world behind, but I ended up saying, you know what, I'm going to take it. It's a slight salary bump. Why not? And about two, three weeks later, more than two-thirds of the engineers at Premier were cut. I mean, it was just a mass. It was someone took an ax to the department. Right. And so, um, so you were glad you left. I was very, very fortunate yeah. in that timing. How um, long were you at Premier? I was at Premier for about two years, I think. Okay. And so... I went from there to essentially being a specialty tax project manager. And that's so, what you do now, right? Correct. And that's a huge jump. Um, you had to learn. You ha I mean, there's a lot of tax code. I've had conversations with you, and you know more about the tax code than I do. How did you learn the business side? How did you learn everything that goes into the awfully simple tax code we have in the U.S.? The format my current company uses, which shout out to TriMerit, uh, we actually almost use an apprenticeship style structure. And so what I, I was teamed up with one of the partners and then one of the project managers. And so everywhere we went, I was essentially his shadow. Once you're fully trained up on it, you can work autonomously. I mean, after this interview, I'm actually going to fly down to Phoenix to meet with the prospective client. But a lot of it was on the job. So you're reading the tax code. There are several books on the topic. You're learning about individual taxes as well because this credit flows through to personal returns. Right. Um, but it's really trial by fire. I mean, you'll come up with so many different situations in the business and tax world that you can't possibly prepare for them all. So a lot of it now is still research as a new situation comes up. So explain to me what your job looks like. I mean, for me, it seems, I mean, you're an engineer, but mm -hmm. you're working with tax codes, like you said. What do you do exactly? Okay, so the Research and Development Tax Credit is a terrible name. Congress started it in the early 80s, I believe. and. When it was initially brought out, you had to be discovering new information to mankind to qualify, which is obviously a high threshold. And so several of the larger companies were able to take it, but it wasn't particularly accessible. In the early 90s, Congress retooled it, and so they made all activity qualify for a four-part test. If you are developing a new or improved business component, which is a product or process, if it is technical in nature, so hard sciences, engineering, anything that's in that domain, avoiding marketing, business studies, etc., if you are, if you, there's a significant technical onset at the significant technical uncertainty at the onset of the project, so how are we going to do it? Can this be done? What's the optimal way to do it? And then if you go through a process of experimentation to resolve it, you qualify or you could qualify for this research and development credit. And so what I do is I meet with companies that could qualify. I help them calculate their credits, and then if it's actually worth it for them to move forward, uh, we'll help them file it. And then we also provide audit support in the event it's challenged by the IRS. Okay. 
So you work with businesses Correct. and help them. So I go and meet with businesses and then I really interface a lot with the clients. We have a sales department that feeds clients to us ostensibly and then we're able to uh, take it from there. Okay, so do businesses reach out to you or do you reach out to them? Typically we reach out to businesses. Sometimes we'll try and get in with the CPA firm though and they have several clients that will qualify. And so it's really a relationship building thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, it is a very skeptical feeling that people get when you come in and say, you know, hey, there's money that you've been earning for years and if you work with us, you'll be able to qualify for it. It's almost like one of those late night infomercials. So <laughs> <clears throat> the toughest part is actually getting people to getting people on board with the fact that they could qualify. But yeah, I meet with them, I tour their company, I talk with their engineers, their technical personnel to find out what they're doing. And so really I get to see a tremendous variety of industry, research and development, et cetera. So I guess I've never really asked you this. I just see you at the gym sometimes. Um, what's your day like? I mean, what's a day in the life of Davey? Uh, sometimes I will wake up and put on pants. I mean, that's if we're really going formal. <laughs> sometimes, huh? <laughs> he has them on today. <laughs> and flip-flops. Yeah. Pants and flip-flops, yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, business formal today. Yeah. Um, so I'll wake up, and when I'm at home, if I'm not traveling to meet with a client, I wake up, I check my email, see if there's any correspondence I have to deal with. I'll be doing credit calculations, so taking their financial documents, putting it into a rather complex calculation formula, and then corresponding with the clients. And then... The other end of it is if I'm traveling, I'll actually go to all of these major metropolitan areas usually, and I'm meeting with the companies themselves, and usually it takes a day, half a day, mm -hmm. to uh, talk through all of their processes. How often do you have to travel? Uh, I get to travel probably six to eight weeks of the year, I would say. And so as we're growing, and we're going through a dynamic period right now, um, that's probably going to go up. But usually I'll travel for, I would say, 30 to 40 days a year. Okay. So expanding on what Jackson said, kind of day in the life of Davey, um, what else do you do outside of work? So uh, my wife and I actually have a farm. We used to live outside of town and we had you know chickens, ducks, rabbits, goats, etc. Strangely, we were actually able to move into town to be closer to the gym when I bought it. And uh, we still have all of the livestock except for a horse. And so you know I, I feed the animals, I take care of the rabbits. Um, depending on how, uh, how well you know me, I spend a lot of time talking to animals too. Being at home by yourself is probably <laughs> bad for you mentally. <laughs> So the NSA definitely has some pretty good audio recordings. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but um, I try and get my work done during the time when a lot of people aren't awake. So I like to wake up early and get started. And then once I get my time in or all of my tasks done, you know, I'll go out, I might meet with people, I might go to the gym and work out. Um, I'll spend a lot of time working on projects at home. But I really like this job because it's task oriented rather than time oriented. I think that people are much more efficient than the standard eight-hour day will let on. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think that a normal human being can be productive, reasonably productive for that period of time. So I try and do as much of my work as possible in as small of a time as possible to try and maximize what I can spend my time on. So how many hours do you work on a typical day? It depends. There's not a typical day because when I travel, I mean, yeah. if there's nothing else to do, I'll be working until 11 o'clock at night because mm -hmm. I'm just in a hotel room, right? Uh, when I'm at home, I will put in usually around eight hours a day. I don't think it's fair to steal from an employee in, employer in that way, but it, it varies based on the season as well. Yeah. The first three months of the year are brutal. So you work from home? Yes. Cool. It is awesome. Okay, so um, just making sure we're staying on, I've got an outline. Um, let's talk about jujitsu. Davey, Love it. How much time do you have? Okay, so so currently Davey runs, owns, operates, coaches uh, at a jiu-jitsu school where I met him. Um, how did you, what what led you to start training jiu-jitsu? 
So I think that most people are interested in the martial arts, right? I mean, you watch a movie, the idea of being a small person able to beat up bigger ones. If you can't see me, I'm not a big guy. I mean, I'm a lightweight. Um, so I'd always been interested in it, right? And I just never knew how to get into it. And uh, my wife actually kickboxed all the way through, uh, I think, fourth grade up to senior year in high school. And so I went to her school a couple of times when we were at the academy, and I was like, wow, this is awesome. But I didn't really get serious about it until college when I met uh, John Menke and Brandon Cronin. Uh, John's a black belt now and Cronin's a brown belt. Um, and so we, we started a freestyle martial arts club on campus and we got kicked off campus relatively quickly because we hosted a, a full contact kickboxing tournament without really getting like waivers or anything like that. No, no joke. There were like 16 people in this and I ended up winning it. Uh, but it was just college kids beating the hell out of each other. And, and you hadn't trained jiu-jitsu at this point? No, just no. Just kickboxing. Exactly. Yeah, I'd done some kickboxing. I'm not very good. And I was like, oh, this is awesome, right? And uh, there were no weight classes. It was it was seriously like the kumite, man. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so we did that. And then there was a grappling portion as well. And I got wrecked because there were some legitimate blue belts in the area who were actually training at a real school. But this brown belt saw us and he's like, man, you guys have zero skill, but I love how enthusiastic you are about this. So he actually took over our club. Um, he sort of adopted us, I would say. And so, I mean, I started training in college and I'll be completely honest, I was there for the academics, but probably halfway through junior year, I bet I was spending like 35, 40 hours a week just training, way more than I spent studying. <laughs> right. Okay, so you you started, what year was that, I guess, 2009? About 2009, 2010. Okay, so you College you kept timeline training. is fuzzy. Right, yeah, <laughs> you can't remember a lot of it. Still have a headache. Um, okay, so you, you kept training jiu-jitsu 30, 40 hours a week. That's a lot more than, than I've ever been able to do. Um, so I, I imagine you progressed pretty quickly. You would think so. Um, I'm actually not a very natural athlete. I have to re repeat stuff over and over and over a lot. And I was also relatively small compared to most of the people in our club. So I spent a lot of time, I would say, uh, building heart, right. so <laughs> getting smashed by big guys. Um, but it really instilled a love of jiu-jitsu in me because jiu-jitsu, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's a martial art that really focuses on self-defense. And the whole principle is using leverage and good physics to allow a smaller person to defeat a bigger one, right? So whether that's a choke or a pin or some kind of a joint lock, a person who is small can actually defend themselves against a larger, stronger, more aggressive attacker. And uh, I mean, I just fell in love with it. Why do you think that is? So I've noticed that the crowd at jujitsu, a lot of nerds show up, right? Myself included. Tyler used to do some Muay Thai MMA. I think he's falls into that category too. Why do you think that, that jujitsu and martial arts attracts that crowd? Well, I think that different martial arts attract different, right. I guess, types of people. So like boxing in general, I'm going to make a huge generalization here. It's very simple, right? But you have to practice it over and over and over again, right? Yeah. Um, Jiu-jitsu, there's a tremendous breadth of, I guess, techniques and positions. I mean, imagine the configurations two bodies can be in. There's almost infinite, right? And so the amount of information that you have to bring in, I would say, is daunting at first. I mean, when new students come in, they're always asking, like, what do I do? You know, what is this? And what's appealing to me is that I've been doing this for 11 years now, and I'm not sure if that timeline works out, um, but I've been doing this for, no, I actually started uh, kickboxing at the academy. That's why that doesn't work. Um, but no matter how long I train it, I get better and better and better, right? right. I and mean, there's always more to learn. And even though, I mean, you, you talked about getting the stomp put on you when you first came into Colossal, yeah. even after that amount of training, there are people who are smaller than me that can do it to me. Yeah. And I mean, I just love it. Right. Okay. So, okay. So you, you trained jujitsu. 
Um, it became a really important part of your life. You kept training all the way through college. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to Idaho. Did you just look up a local gym and start going? I mean, how did you continue training jiu-jitsu once you got all the way across the country almost? Nailed well, not it. all the way across, but... There were two schools in town, and I went to both of them, and I fell in love with Precision. It was actually run by John and Jesse Ralph and Heath Ivers. Uh, Heath, you actually met the other day. Yeah, he beat me up. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, they're all monsters. Yeah. Um, and what I liked about it is they had a, you know, they are very friendly, but they had a very academic approach to it. Uh, John is, I think, a nuclear physicist or something, so uh, definitely outside of my league. But... Very clear teacher, and I just kept training, kept training, kept training. Because it's exercise, but it's not boring, right? Right, yeah. You can get the work out of your life, and it doesn't feel like you just went in and, you know, moved some weights around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you compete? When did you start competing? Well, you do compete. So when did you finally jump into competing? Obviously, you started off with the kickboxing tournament. You <laughs> yeah. won, so you started off at a, at a good pace. Uh, when did you start competing in jiu-jitsu? I started competing in jiu-jitsu in, uh, I was actually still in college. I went up to an in-house tournament at St. Charles MMA, and, you know, I'd never trained in the gi before. I'd only done no gi, so without the jacket and pants, and I got demolished. I think my total match time for the day was around a minute for, like, four matches. Right. I mean, just wrecked by these serious athletes, and I never trained in a gi. Um, after that, I actually had an MMA fight in college. I fought a guy who owned a school and um, ended up winning in the first round by armbar, but you know, kind of cycling back to the fact that I was afraid of failure. It was, it's really tough for me to compete. I forced myself to do it more and more, but it's very, very difficult for me to deal with the concept that I might go in and try my hardest and still lose. But I think that's actually one of the things that jujitsu has to offer. I mean, it makes you grow so much. Yeah, I did a competition and went 0-4. So I, I kind of know what you are talking about, kind of to a small degree. Okay, so you jump into jiu-jitsu, you're training at Precision, you're working at Premier mm-hmm. um, at this point, and at some point you took over the gym, you bought it, rebranded the gym, um, it became yours. Tell us yes. about that transition, what led you to make that decision, because that's out of that's out of the norm for an engineer. Sure. Well, maybe I'm generalizing there, but but you, you have this job, and, and your wife has a job, you've got a school, and now you own a business yeah. while you're working. So John and Jesse, uh, they ended up moving to California, and so Heath was running the school on his own, and he had a lot of things going on in his life, and so he talked to me one day, like, you know, do you, do you want to take over the gym? And it had always been kind of a dream of mine to own a martial arts school, and I didn't realize how much work that entailed, but I was like, you know, sure, I'll do it. So I, I set up a legal entity, uh, we transferred everything over, and essentially I took it over in April of 2016. Oh, Okay. Yeah, relatively recent. I mean, we've only been running for about a year to 10 months as Colossal. Oh, and okay. I mean, it's been huge growth. So I showed up right after you guys opened Colossal. Exactly. Yeah, okay. this is a, for how much we've grown, it's been an incredibly fast transition. So you went out and you got a business license. Mm-hmm. When you run a gym, is there any sort of like extra insurance you have to have? And tell me about how you found programs like martial arts on rails. Right, the oh, payment right. system. Like those are those are tiny little things that people running a business want to know about. So how did you sure. figure out these things? So before I even looked at taking it over, I looked at what is the amount of money coming in from current students. I looked at you know some projected uh, outflows of cash, like what's it going to take to run it. And I actually determined that first of all, you have to form a business, right? I don't want this on my personal name. I'm going to form a separate entity for liability reasons. So I made an LLC. Then I looked at okay, first thing you have to have is a space. Most martial arts studios rent their building, and I think that is just a cash sink because you have no equity. It's really not worth the time. Not that many things go wrong with the building if, you, if you're smart about it. 
So I ended up buying a building in town. And so our gym is, we, we own our gym. We're very proud of that. We can change the space however we want to. Did you buy it in cash or did you finance it? We decided to finance it. We could have bought it outright, but it is better to use other people's money, especially for a risky venture like that. Right. I mean, I'd gotcha. never run a, a business before like that. Yeah. And so there was uh, the Eastern Idaho Development Corporation. And so um, I partnered with them and another bank to be able to essentially take the loan and bifurcate it or cut it in half. And uh, I have financing from two separate institutions. And they were willing to do that for a company with no no gross receipts, no real records. I was just able to give them a really primitive cash flow and go from there. Okay. So how many students do you have right now at the gym? Ooh, currently, I'd say we have probably 60 to 70. Really? Yeah, it, it's grown a lot. I really like families to train with us. And so I will offer a discount for family members especially mm-hmm. because I, I don't do this for the money. And I think that that's really attractive to people. I mean, a lot of martial arts studios will try and nickel and dime you yeah. and they're trying to squeeze every bit of cash. But I mean, I want my gym to be my family, right? So I mean, Jackson and I will we'll talk after practice for like an hour or two. Like, it's amazing I haven't gotten an angry call from your wife yet. <laughs> I mean, it, I'm friends with everyone who comes on my mats. Yeah, that's right. And ha- do you have instructors working for you as well? Yeah, so uh, I actually teach with a friend of mine named Paul Sandrini, and okay. uh, he and I both run the classes for kids and adults. He primarily teaches kids. I primarily teach adults. But yeah, he and I, uh, I pay him as a contract instructor, but it's perfect. And how many hours a week do you spend at the gym, would you say? Not training, running the gym and teaching. Running the gym itself, yeah. Okay, so running the gym is a more nebulous quantity. There is, so first of all, it's like 80% (laughs) janitorial. Um, The amount of time you have to spend cleaning is insane. There is also, you know, handling the, like Martial Arts on Rails is the program I use to handle my website, my billing, et cetera. I probably spend maybe another four hours a week on that. Setting up new students, sending out emails. When their cards decline. Yeah, exactly. That's how I know. Yeah. That's why you have to get paid in Bitcoin. Yeah, that's right. Um, (laughs) I did um, pay him once in Bitcoin, so it worked out. Well, and part of it, too, is checking in on students, right? So if someone hasn't checked in for a couple weeks, hey, is everything okay? Like, some of them have surgery or whatever, unrelated to what we do. But, uh, (laughs) you know, are you all right? Is there anything we can do for you? Because... When you're running a business, you can choose to look at it as a business or you can choose to look at it as an aspect of your life. And once you make it the second one, I mean, it's a lot more humanizing. I mean, my, my students are not people that I extract cash from. They're my friends, right? So it, it really helps both on the business side and it stops you from becoming a really money-driven, uh, soulless creature. Yeah. So I've seen you've even done things like, you know, your marketing platform. I've seen sponsored ads on my Facebook yeah. and on my Instagram, I think. Um, did you teach yourself or did you contract a marketing firm? So I have a very, very good friend named James Rich who he works in SEO and he does marketing. He's very, very good at his job. And so he gave me the st- steps and sometimes he'll help me because I'm s- relatively inept at it. Um, he's helped me set up a lot of the online presence and the uh, actual advertising. And I would recommend it for anyone who's starting a business. You will always underestimate how important marketing is. Mm-hmm. Everyone always kind of views things as a steady state, but the reality is your clients will always be in flux. And if you are not growing, you are shrinking. So anytime things are staying the same, you need to be asking yourself, what's the next thing I need to do, right? What's the next step for us? Because things don't stay the same, unfortunately. Well, and it sounds like you're utilizing social media as part of your marketing strategy. Yeah. So Facebook will actually give you these kind of teasers. They'll give you like, you know, a $10 or $30 to boost your post. And the idea is that you'll see it successful and you'll get more clients out of it and you'll pay them eventually. Um, me being me, relatively stingy. I just use the free ones when they come along. Right. But um, there are other ways that we have a marketing budget. But I mean, primarily, if you're putting out a good product and you're encouraging people to talk about it, word of mouth will spread it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely an important part of marketing. Exactly. Okay. So let's, a um, couple more things here. And then 
well, just a few more questions. I have a, I have a quick question about the gym, maybe. Where do you, I guess, looking down the road, further down the road, where do you see the gym? What do you want the gym to become in the future? I mean, are you happy with where it's at now? Do you want to grow it? Do you want to open more locations? Kind of what's your plan with it? So with the gym currently, we are growing both in quality and in size. So I would like to pack the mats. I've set minimum numbers of students per class. We average about 15 per right now. I would like to get up to maybe 25 or 30 on the mats every night. Uh, In terms of quality, I encourage my students to compete. I mean, there is nothing that really establishes whether or not you know how to fight than going out and fighting people, right? And so going out, especially competing in front of a whole bunch of people, forces you to deal with nerves. So, <laughs> right, yeah. you know, uh, we're encouraging as many people as possible to go to nationals in, a, like, I think three weeks. Yeah, so, in Las Vegas, right? Yeah. yeah. So Paul and I are going to go and do that, a few of our white belts as well. But I want to grow it so that it's actually a high-quality institution uh, all the way across the board. And then from there, I'm not really sure. I mean, I don't know what the next aspect will be. I've looked at acquiring a few relatively close properties and turning it into more of like a health spa as well. So see if we can get like a, you know, spa, sauna, hot tub, et cetera, set up. But there are a lot of directions that we could go. Okay. Okay, so um, you've kind of got these two different aspects of your life. You work and you have this great job that you love. You've been there since 2010, 11? No, uh, no, no, no. 2011, I would say. Okay, with the current firm. Correct. Um, You've, you've gotten into the flow with that. You mm-hmm. have mastered that. And then you've got Colossal that you're growing in, in jujitsu. You also do, you run a small scale farm at your house. We've talked a little, a little bit about that. And you do basic <laughs> financial counseling services. Yeah. Tell us about that and what how you help people. You're very um, altruistic, sure. it seems like. So, so what do you do in counseling people and, and give some information of kind of just basic tips you give to everybody? So I was a little on the fence about calling this a business, but uh, essentially for you know friends, family, people in my church, whatever, I will sit down with them and I'll help them establish that picture of where they're at that I talked about initially. And for a lot of people, they're afraid of finances, right? It's intimidating. Mm-hmm. Like when you talk about investing, most people's brains shut off because it's, it's scary, right? There's a lot right, of unknowns. Yeah. And much of our media, especially on investing, is shaped by fear because fear sells. Um, so what I'll do is I'll help them look at all their accounts, their credit reports, and we'll get that picture of where they're at and then I'll talk to them. What do you want out of life, right? You know, what do you want to do? And based on what they want to do, we can help them start taking real concrete steps to move toward that, right? Nothing fancy. It's basic budgeting and goal setting. But if you've never done it before, it's scary. Yeah. It definitely was when I was eating, you know, ramen and hot dogs about to go live with my parents. So <laughs> move back, yeah. I understand the feeling. Okay, so you, you project other people's lives and you help them kind of design a path. So where do you want your life to go? And what are you doing? It seems like you're constantly learning and acquiring new skills and developing personally. So where do you see yourself in five years and and what path do you want your life to be on? So Ken's and I are both extremely religious. Uh, We're both very devout Christians. It's extremely important to us. I would say the most important to both of us. And what we would like to do is build a foundation from which we are able to spend our time helping other people. Like one of my personal goal desire, it's not quite there yet. I would love to work a full-time job and be able to donate all of it. Honestly, I mean, can you imagine how much you could impact someone's life if you were able to pour an annual salary into someone else's life? Right. Ideally, if that could take off, imagine the snowball effect, right? Um, If you help someone else, say for example, get out of debt or pay off their mortgage, and all of a sudden you have two incomes working toward one goal. I would love to see a society of people who are no longer chained by debt necessarily, but are able to make decisions not based on fear of, losing their house, losing their job, et cetera. 
Uh, I think that one of the things that really constrains Americans is the fact that we get tied to debt or we get tied to bad financial circumstances, and all of a sudden we have no autonomy in our lives, right? You have no agency. You can't go anywhere if you have student loans. Those are ridiculously difficult to discharge. I would like to see people be free, and I think that we would see a much better society if that were the case. So is that that best accomplished through the private sector or the public sector? I'm a very, very big free market guy. I do not think that the public sector is the best place to do it at all. Uh, A, I believe it's just simply less efficient, right? There are some very clearly described roles of government. There are some that are nebulous, I would say. But I think by and large that we should be more charitable. I mean, America is the Rome of the world in the sense that we are so wealthy. But very few people give the charity because we always feel like we're strapped for cash. But I mean, my wife has done uh, two trips to Uganda as a, a mission, right? And you don't know what poverty is until you see a child covered in flies too weak to bat them off, right? So when you're talking about how your car payment constrains you or something, it it should cause, I believe, a righteous indignation, I would right, say. Yeah. And I want people to be able to feel that again because they're not focused on themselves, but they're looking at what they can do for others. Well, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to follow that up. Yeah, I feel like I need to be much more charitable with my time and resources. Good. See, it's working yeah, right it's there. Working. No, I, I I totally agree, though. Everyone could be more charitable, and I think it would make a huge difference. I mean, all of us, us three here, are very blessed in our lives, I would say. Um, probably most of the people that are listening to this are also very blessed. Um, some are making more money than others, but I think overall, you know, we, we have a roof over our head, we have food on our tables, and it could be a lot worse. Like you said, you were in Uganda. I'm sure my I mean, wife was, but yeah, oh, that's right. Your wife was in Uganda. And what we struggle with here is nothing in comparison to what they're struggling with. They're exactly you know, whether it's food, trying to get food, they don't have the energy to, you know, bat a fly off their arm, whatever it is. We don't struggle with that. So I think it is definitely important to use our skills and use, you know, our fortune or, you know, money, whatever it is to give back and help other people. And I, I guess I should caveat that as well. I don't believe that money has the ability to solve any problem, right? I can give someone a million dollars and it could be gone within six months. Look mm-hmm. at the history of lottery winners, right? I mean, I could spend that probably in a couple of days. Oh, sure. So. Yeah, sorry. Oh, <laughs> Didn't mean to lowball you there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but um, I think that money combined with education, you learn to see money for what it is, right? It's a tool. You can buy power. You can buy time with it. You can do whatever you want with money. But if you're only using it on yourself, ultimately, you'll be hollow, right? I mean, how is it possible that people who have billions of dollars off themselves, right? Yeah. Or celebrities, you know, get drug addictions. Yeah. If you focus on yourself, ultimately, I think it's an empty existence. And so you have to look out. So is it fair to kind of categorize your life as you spent your youth developing skills that would bless your life financially, create freedom and the ability to bless others' lives? And you're using those skills that you've acquired to earn money. You're trickling money out of your own pockets and into the lives of others to lift them out of poverty and then that cycle will continue. As they get out of poverty, they'll help others. And, and the idea here is to educate yourself and develop skills and build businesses that will kind of lift generations out of poverty and increase their quality of life. Yes, I think that's a fair summation. I think that money combined with time actually investing in people as people, yeah. I think that is the recipe for a better world, right? If you actually care about someone to the point that you'll spend your own money, your own power, right, to help them, that speaks volumes. I think that money is a way to open doors to people so that they'll listen to what you have to say. And then once you open that door, then you can start actually talking about real change. But if someone talks about change while simultaneously leaving other people out to die, I mean, you obviously don't believe your own message. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see what you do. 
would love to have you on, you know, a few, few years down the road to see kind of what charitable endeavors you're involved with and talk more about that. But I think, yeah, that, yeah, that I'll is come an back awesome aspiration that you have. Definitely. Yeah. I like it a lot. Okay. Um, one more question. What would you tell yourself 10 years ago and five years ago? What advice or lesson has been the most valuable that you've learned? Uh, 10 years ago, I would actually tell myself, um, you are making a good decision with Mackenzie. I think that for anyone who's thinking about getting married or in a relationship, you must be morally compatible, compatible, different word there. (laughs) (laughs) You must be morally compatible with the person you want to spend the rest of your life with. Uh, On a financial side, very few things can cripple your future like a divorce. And if you don't, you get to choose very few things in life. You do get to choose who you marry. I had very good pick in Kenzie. She makes me better in every way. So make sure that you are surrounding yourself with people and especially your spouse. Choose someone who's going to make you better. Man, if, if that person brings you down or doesn't encourage you to be the best you you can be, don't spend the rest of your life with them. And that is a huge decision that many people make young before they have experience. And I, I would encourage anyone to carefully evaluate that. And then once you're sure, pull the trigger and work on it. Yeah. And that person is worth, if they're worth marrying, they're worth keeping. Cool. Absolutely. So something I'd like to point out from kind of today's episode, um, our first three episodes, you know, we talked about people that just started their own business, they're successful um, from starting their own business. But to be successful, you don't have to necessarily start your own business. For you, David, you're not, I mean, you have your gym, sure, obviously, um, you run a farm, but you also work for someone. And that's how you have found your success, I guess, monetarily. And it's allowed you to do things like start your own gym, um, have a farm, hopefully, you know, these charitable endeavors that you talked about, it's come from right. your, your, your full-time job, right? Um, so those that are listening that I don't want you guys to take away thinking that you have to be an entrepreneur to be successful because that is not the case. You can work for someone and still find success. Um, it just depends on your personality. It depends on who you are and it depends on what you want to do. Absolutely. I think that no matter what your income is, as long as you budget appropriately, I mean, you will be able to achieve things in life. Yeah. One of the things I like about Davey and Tyler and and Carl, um, they've all gone out and made something of their lives. They, you know, you could argue that they were born with certain characteristics or privileges, um, but really it's a a matter of hard work and dedication and trying. I mean, jujitsu is an example, and some of you may not have any idea what I'm talking about. I'm a white belt in jujitsu, and it's one of the most difficult things I've ever had to learn. But I'm progressing, albeit very slowly, um, because of hard work and dedication and showing up. So overcoming any obstacle, any uh, disadvantage that you were born with or born into, you can do it through hard work and, and dedication and time spent. And so you know, you may feel like you're spinning your wheels, you may feel like you're not making any progress, but as long as you have a clear plan, you know, point A to point B, or you have a, a an idea even of where you want to become, there's really no energy wasted in in pursuing or bettering yourself. Um, And eventually that trickles over into blessing the lives of others, whether it be students in a jujitsu gym, people that you can lift off out of poverty, pay down their loans or, you know, their mortgages, whatever. But it really does go full cycle and it really helps a lot of people. So I think it's great. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Davey. I really appreciate it. It's been an interesting discussion, very valuable. I take a lot of I get a lot of pointers from what you say, so I I really appreciate it, and I'm sure our audience does too. Uh, Tell us how to reach out to you if they have questions, what they can do to contact you and find you. Sure. If you have questions about the R&D tax credit, you can reach out to me at dgoram, D as in David, G-O-R-H-A-M, at try-merit.net. 
And then if you have any questions about martial arts or you're local to Idaho, uh, colossalfc at gmail.com. I'd love to talk to you about either.